Welcome to Your Money with DeWitt Capital Management, a show about investing, the markets, life, and everything in between. David DeWitt Jr. and Sr. and Scott Frank will share what they've been reading and listening to and what the trends are in the market. All opinions expressed in the show are solely the opinions of Dave, Dave, and Scott or any guest on the show and do not reflect the opinions of DeWitt Capital Management. All content within the podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decision-making. All right, how goes it? Hey, it's Friday. Welcome to the show. Big week because we got stimulus passed. Another 1.9 trillion getting pumped into this economy. So what's that mean? What's everybody get? This time it's a lot different in terms of the uh, ratio of business spending to individual spending. So this time we've got, they're extending the unemployment benefits, the existing 300 weekly through September 6, as well as a $10,000 tax break on unemployment benefits. You got the stimulus checks, 1400 on top of the 600 we already got in December. So that's $400 billion um, to, this, to another round of checks. They did lower the phase-out levels this time from 100000 to 80000 of 2019. So you know, I have read some people are pretty bummed about that. Hmm. People are getting used to this, this, this cash flow from the government. Um, so one of the interesting parts of this, this particular, uh, stimulus is that it seems like the, um, the, the sort of the beginning of potential universal income for kids. Um, so with this stimulus, uh, you've got for children under six, $3,600 and, uh, over six, 3000, I believe it is. Um, so it's going to be paid monthly, like $300 a month. And I think the Democrats at least are hoping to probably make this permanent afterwards. So, um, it's pretty remarkable that we've gotten to this point now where I guess the coronavirus has really opened up the opportunity for this kind of stuff to get through. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, this sounds so like we're heading more a, into a socialistic situation if... If that's the case, if the government's going to continue to give tax credits, is it tax credits or cash? It technically, it's tax credits, but they're going to be paying it monthly. So they're going to basically, I think they're going to be like basically advancing it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so it, it benef- it's for a single year, but if it becomes permanent as Democrats intend, it will enlarge the safety net for the poor middle class, I think. People are hopeful that this will help actually get to poorer families, whereas I think I was reading that in the past, a lot of this kind of stuff would still just end up going to higher earners. And I guess Biden is saying he projects that this can reduce child poverty by 45 percent and more than 50 percent among black families. So I guess I guess it's an experiment. Right. Um, Normally, I guess we'd be sending all this money to businesses and now we're sending it directly to places that can really help, I think, but uh, it's still money that government is borrowing that they don't have to spend. So remarkable that we've gotten to this point. And I guess that begs the question, you know, how do we pay for this? Right. How do we pay for this? Um, and so, and then I was, I saw a stat that a middle-class family of four 
can get $12,000 from this, this round of stimulus in total. What was that again? Did I hear that right? Yeah, it's right. Yeah, a middle-class family of four gets 12K from the stimulus. Gunlock thinks this is crazy. He thinks it's like a monetizing experiment. He And he wow. he, he had this webcast a couple of days ago. And he, he named it Looking Backward. And he based it off a book from 1888 called Looking Backward that basically predicted that a utopian society would emerge in the U.S. in 2000. And in the book, there was a political movement that advocated, among other things, the nationalization of private property. And um, basically, he's saying that there's a lot of parallels, and that's almost in some ways coming true. Um, so that so basically, the protagonist in that novel wakes up in 2000, and the U.S. has been transformed into a socialist utopia. Um, and he he noted, I guess, in jest, I'm sure. Um, that in 1988, the New York Times wrote a, a piece on the 100th anniversary of this book saying how the implications of the, of the book were appalling. And Gunlock, I guess, in jest, said that he doesn't think that newspaper would have the same things to say today, given the way the political spectrum has gone. So it's pr- pretty fascinating. As they say, this time it's different, right? Yeah, this time it's different. This time it's different. Yeah. Um, so, cool. My concern here would be that um, if people are getting uh, that much money, that that would be a disincentive to actually work. Is that is there an issue here with that? See, that's the thing. You know, it's potentially an issue, and I think that will be the case for some some people. And for other people, they're going to be super thankful, and it'll help them a lot. So it's like it's almost there's always give and take. You know, Um, there's always upside. There's always the downside. Um, I mean. I'm cool. Like I'm cool with it for the year, but I, I mean, if they just try and ram stuff like this through, I mean, one of Gunlock's concerns with this is that he thinks that people are becoming now basically um, indoctrinated into the idea that the government's just going to pay you money when things go rough. Um, yes. And, 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 and what he, he says that the trend of this stuff becoming permanent means that rates won't be able to stay low for longer, um, which will be bad, right? Because, I mean, I was trying to work through this in my brain. I guess if you keep just spending this money, spending, 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 um, there's just going to con- constantly be so much money flowing through the economy that rates will have to go up. Um, if you have any thoughts, Scott, on why the mechanics of that? It's well, just- I mean, it's either yeah, the rates go up, or you're going to have to like pay through it through higher taxation, right? So, yeah. So either way. Um, um, either way you're going to pay for it. It's just, it, or it could be a combination of both, I guess. You know, if you look back after World War II, or there was a huge amount of deficit spending to pay for a war effort, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the federal tax rate was up in the 80% range. Everybody right. was looking for some sort of tax in, you know, right. in a break or in partnership or some kind of deduction. But yep. um, I mean, I mean, it looks like, I mean, just from the bare bones of it, it looks like um, down the road, higher inflation and higher tax rates. Yeah, I mean, in, in like if if this gets permanent, it's just the beginning of what else could be permanent. Then, like next thing you know, people will be saying, "Well, you know, my kid's getting three hundred dollars a month, but you know, where's my three hundred dollars a month? You know, where's my universal income for for the rest of my life?" Um, so it seems like a slippery slope. I mean, I always felt like part of what made America different was you know that we weren't going down that socialist path but it seems like uh, 
Mm. Let's not wind up like Venezuela. Right. Well, I mean, as long as everything, I mean, I guess theoretically, if everything's balanced in context of that, there is real economic growth then we won't become Venezuela because if, as long as you're growing, well, a little bit of inflation is not going to kill you. Right. <laughs> and I guess the theory is if you're, if government has an interest in the, the young having a good childhood and being productive later on. So I guess I can see it from that standpoint, but um, I think there's been, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the evidence of stuff like this is being very effective is questionable in terms of the productivity of people and the sort of, you know, the work ethic of the nation. I definitely would like to stay strong, but, um, and so anyways, the real headline over the past few weeks has been the increase fears of inflation and everybody's always talking about inflation as though it's a bad thing, but maybe it's not such a bad thing in some ways, right? Well, the Fed wants 2% or more inflation. Um, I'm not sure why they want it, but they do want it. Um, well, I mean, I was thinking in terms of like, you know, people have a lot of debt, you know, and if, and if inflation comes along with, you know, for re- the reason of increased wages and, you know, you've been swimming in debt, uh, if your wages go up, but your debt stays the same, then all of a sudden you're able to pay that debt off faster, right? Yeah. So assuming your debt is fixed, um, wages increase. Um, yeah. It's um, uh, you have, you know, more left over to, to service the debt. Yeah. And maybe so, potentially invest. And then also if it's secured against a mortgage or a, a, a property, uh, you know, you still have a, an appreciating asset versus that too. So, um, so that's not a bad thing. Right. I guess, you know, most of the articles that I feel like I've read over the past few weeks thinking about inflation have really mostly been about why inflation is not going to be a big deal. And there was another good one uh, in Barron's. And essentially his idea is that um, the pandemic led to price spikes for items. So, so in some cases, inflation has already happened in a lot of different products um and they're one off and now there's actually deflation happening as things get back to normal and the areas that he looks at are um uh like pre-owned cars spiked up a lot and now that you know we're going to be getting back to normal you know the rate of change and the increase in prices and pre-owned cars has gone down similar for um major appliances and household cleaning products and um, rent renting. So rent has gone less expensive relative. Um, mm-hmm. and school inflation has really went, has gone down a lot. Um, you mean like the, the, the cost of tuition, the cost of tuition, the rate of yeah. the rate of change of the increase is like gone so far down. So basically I'm looking at this chart in 2004, it was increasing 10% a year. And now it, the current rate of change isn't like near zero if I'm looking yes. at this correctly. Part of that might be because the demographics, there's a, a lull uh, in the number of kids going to college at the age of going to college. So maybe the uh, they just can't keep cranking up prices. Yeah, true. And, and it's been, but if you look at this chart, 2004 to 2020, it's just been a straight line down. So that's actually good because you always hear about how 
tuition is so expensive. It keeps going higher and higher and higher. Yeah. And I think that's the advent of also online schooling, um, you know, online courses offered by universities. Just it's, um, it's more accessible. So it's going to bring it down. Yeah. And then it looks like in the options market, uh, for the, the next three years, expected expected average inflation rate as implied by the options market is like uh 3% mm-hmm. or no the median implied expectations like 2%. So it's not even so so even in the options market it's not predicting any crazy inflation. And I guess this leads to some more comments that I heard from um Gunlock the big bond investor and he he's has a similar um, feeling, I think. Um, he says, yes, headline inflation could go high, 4%, maybe even 5%. And headline inflation, I had to refresh myself, is inflation that includes energy and food prices. That's right. And I think policymakers generally are more focused on core inflation, which excludes those. So he doesn't think core inflation, and the same with the guy who wrote the Barron's article, don't think core inflation will be a problem. But he does think that the headline inflation numbers could still spook the market because the market loves to get spooked. Well, it's not for the last period of time here, maybe the last few months, um, I was out skiing with a friend of mine who sells uh, industrial materials and anything derived from oil, the prices of those things like polypropylene and things like that are up like 100%. Lumber's going up, copper's going up. There's a lot of inflation in the commodities. I don't know how that translates to inflation um, at the consumer level, but it's it's got to have a it's got to have some impact. Yeah, has has how much of that inflation has been a has been from the coronavirus? Yeah, it's probably, I mean, a a lot of it. it's probably supply chain issues, right? Yeah, so I think a lot of it. Yeah, there is a supply, issues. yeah, supply chain issue is part of it. So I think that's part of what the the sort of spirit of that Barron's article was that, you know, a lot of this, this stuff has been created by the coronavirus and it's one off. So you have to like get through that and then see where it really lands. Um, and also their business has a remarkable ability to like increase supply to like quickly uh, you know, meet demand. Um, it seems like that's just businesses. I mean, businesses have become so much more uh, flexible just globally with the ability to quickly make new stuff or to quickly solve problems. So like that can definitely be helped with runaway inflation, which I'm more and more convinced isn't coming. And Gunlock also reminds people that um, the economy is not as strong as it seems uh, in that inflation typically comes with economic growth. But, you know, he mentions how the unemployment rate is still 6.2%, but claims for unemployment benefits show that employment is nowhere near its pre-pandemic levels because 10% of the labor force is still getting unemployment insurance. He thinks that consumer confidence is still far from fully recovered. And then just in terms of, uh, um, you know, this is likely to change, but he says how hotel occupancy rates are lower than in 2009. 
and are very depressed. Yeah, travel and leisure stocks are 20%. Well, yeah, so, but travel and leisure stocks are 20% higher than pre-pandemic levels. So that's crazy in terms of the stock. That's a very interesting stock set, which... Well, you know, there's been studies done done by a behavioral scientists that explain that the way people feel is not whether things are at one level or another, but the direction of the level. So the fact that things got so bad and are improving on a rapid basis with the uh, you know vaccines and the economy returning back to normal it just feels really good, and that could be a result that create enthusiasm in the market that might in the long run be unwarranted. Yeah. Like, yeah, it makes sense. Like yeah. if somebody told you today that you had $5 million and the day before you had a million dollars and somebody else had $10 million the day before, and then now you've got 5 million bucks, how happy is a guy who had the 10 million versus the one? So things got so bad that as they're improving, people get enthusiastic. And I think that is reflected in the market. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. And with the hotels, I mean, there's going to be, it's going to be a lot different in six months, I think, than it is now. So clearly the market's expecting some big surge, but we'll see how that it's reading forward six, 12 months. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people that have been cooped up for the last 12 months are probably anxious to get out and go somewhere. <laughs> I think that's all of us, right? I yeah, think that's yeah, all I know of I us. Am. I definitely I'm... think I am. Um, Gunlock is quite convinced that stocks are in a bubble and that bonds are in a bubble. Um, he thinks that when, if stocks do eventually drop, it will be a big number or percentage level. And, um, but we shall see if, and we shall see, cause I know, uh, we have another bond King, Scott Minard, right. Who has a different view. Yeah. I mean, you know, he thinks we're kind of in this potentially this new golden age of a new cycle coming through. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I guess there's always two sides to everything. Um, but coming back to the Gunlock comment, that's um, very much in line. I think we discussed in an earlier podcast about Jeremy Grantham. He's had, you know, he's he's sounding the a similar alarm um, as you know as to you know equity valuations, and also I think you know Gunlock had mentioned if you kind of look at you know. It, the the valuations based on like the Schiller Cape we've discussed this many times in the past, um, it's relatively high, right? Um, I don't think it's uh, as high, uh, you know, historically as it. Uh, I guess it's not the highest it has been historically, but it, it's quite elevated. I think maybe ninety nine is the only other point in time it was higher. But his suggestion was that if this administration imposes a new or a different corporate tax rate, you'll have to adjust that. Uh, and, and by adjusting in doing so, you would inflate the valuation even more. It would it'd be, look a lot, or it would yeah. look somewhat worse, right? Yeah. So, so that could be, you know, it's an observation that people should be yeah. cognizant. I will say um, we got a nice little taste of, you know, what happens when momentum in a, a bubbly market gets some some of the rug pulled out yes. uh, last week with the tech stock sell off. Um, I, might, I might note I went skiing for four days at Park City, and it was I was skiing downhill, but so was the tech sector downhill <laughs> yeah. for three days. But yeah. when I came back that next day, the market really rallied. So really, 
what it boils down to is I just can't step away because that things go crazy. Yeah. And let me just um, uh, close the loop. So the shelter cape right now is at 30, call it 35 and a half, uh, which is the second highest since 1870 or so. Uh, the highest point was uh, a rating of 44, and that was in December of 1999. So, yeah, it's, hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to fully take in all of these sort of indicators and then continue to invest you know it's almost like okay yeah i'm seeing i see these 15 indicators that are showing that market's overvalued and it's crazy but i still need to be in the market because if i'm not then i'm missing out (laughs) right and and i don't know if it's so much you know it's not a brilliant like mechanism for timing but i think it's you know as we've discussed before a lot of these some of these indicators are, are pretty, uh, pretty good at estimating forward looking returns. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's not suggesting that, you know, that we have to have a huge correction to change the dynamics of the forward looking returns it just means that they may moderate in the future, uh, relative to what they have been doing the last 10 or 12 years, which makes sense. Yeah. And I guess, it seems like the market is priced in such a way where it just wants things to stay as stay stay the same. Like as soon as rates rates are at an absolute level, still very low, but when they started going up quickly, that spooked the market because the market's like, oh man, if they keep going up and up and up this quickly, then you know there's a real changes ahead. Um, so this market can be can stay being this market, I think, as long as things don't change, <laughs> essentially. Which is, and I think there's risk that. You know, rates will have more surges, um, small surges that creates a lot more volatility. Um, I don't think tech stocks, that's not the last time tech stocks. I mean, there are some tech stocks down, you know, 30% in a week. I don't think that's the last time we see that um, unwinding like that. Of course, they've come back up a lot of them, most of them. But I think as, as some of these changes are proposed and talked about, then we'll see some more volatility. Yeah, I think the market is much more sensitive to this uh, this shift between the growth to value, and I think it's trying to it's trying to to time it pretty uh, pretty heavily, right? So, so every time you kind of see a tick up, um, you're reevaluating your growth stuff and saying, okay, maybe it's time to get out. So yeah, we're totally almost, in this. We're totally so, in this. Yeah, oversensitive. Yeah, we're totally in this binary right now in this binary sort of market where growth, where either growth is going down and values going up or the opposite. And I am looking forward to getting back to where it can just, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can just be things are priced. Yeah. yeah, Coexistence. Yeah. But I think, I think, but this shows you that one is we don't know if that trend, how long that trend will hold if it holds, right. It's, it's holding for now. It has been for what, since end of last year. Um, but I think it's like the investors are kind of, uh, you know, ambitiously looking to get into it as soon as they see some data point tick up. Uh, and um, yeah, and so you're, you're, get, you're kind of getting this flip flopping of, of, you know, is it here to stay or is it a value trap like we've seen the last yeah. decade? And that comes at the expense of the growth stocks. But I guess since there's such a valuation gap, 
my, I just said, I can't wait for that time when they can coexist, but that might not be able to really truly happen until that gap between valuations at least comes back to maybe more historical averages. Right. Well, the, the thing that happened the last week was you had the, the growth momentum stocks tank and the value stocks go up, but then the tech stocks came up and the, I think the value stocks remain. I mean, I think what's happening yeah. in a very, they're both kind they are kind of looking like they're both working at this point. Well, they're both working in a very binary fashion where they're not going up together in any sense of the way. There's just binary. It's not, not all boats are being lifted at once now. It's either growth or it's not. So it's diverging, right? So like traditionally, like, so these correlations are, are, are separating. So um, it's kind of, it's either one is on and one is off, right? Where, um, where, you know, usually it was a bit more correlated. So, um, so the market's trying to figure that out is, is the growth trade, you know, slowing and it's time to flip into, you know, but also, you know, it's a bit of the recovery too. Right. So, um, you know, I think you've pulled so many years of returns forward on the stay at home sectors and technology that people are saying, okay, this other stuff is, you know, been left behind. It, it makes sense if we're uh, on the cusp of reopening. Right. It makes me wonder what's going to happen to companies like Peloton, which, you know, went gangbusters on people exercising at home once all the gyms are back open. I mean, and you could look at a whole number of companies that have benefited from the stay at home trade. Um, yeah. Once it opens up, I think it's short Peloton, long beer gardens. Long what? Beer gardens. Oh, I, Okay. A joke. <laughs> oh, I kind of like the idea. Yeah, Peloton. Yeah, I mean, so in four, so in three years, Peloton's about a fifty billion dollar company. Are we thinking? Wow, do you remember when Peloton was fifty billion dollars? Or wow, do you remember when Peloton was fifty billion and it went down twenty percent and we didn't buy it? <laughs> right. Just check a look on eBay and see how many Peloton bikes are for sale in the next six months. I know typically when I get exercise equipment to put in my house, I work on it for a couple of weeks and then I kind of forget that it's there. But at least I have the satisfaction of knowing that I bought something that might encourage me to exercise at some point. Right. You use it for two weeks, then you hang laundry from it. Yeah, I think the most exercise I've been getting lately is walking the dog. Yeah, a good walk, a good brisk or fast-paced walk, I think, is as good as anything else. Yeah, a good fast-paced walk is great, particularly if you have some hills involved in it. For sure. Where's the best place to invest? Where's the most growth coming, Scott? In the I don't know, but like, yeah, let's um, let's just say there's a. You know, we've been investing in the emerging market consumer for you know a number of years, uh, and I just thought um, I came across this study by the European Commission. I thought maybe just kind of throw in a couple of data points that I think uh, are pretty pretty interesting. So uh, I kind of go through a couple of data points, and then we can kind of discuss. Um, so the global middle class is expected to grow and reach five point five billion by two thousand thirty, and eighty seven percent. Uh, of this additional middle class population will be uh, in Asia. 
Um, Where is it now? You, you, you said it was going to a certain percent, but how much of an increase is that over 10 years? No idea. You always ask the questions that we don't know the answers to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm just, did you yeah. say, let's go with, let, let's go with what's on the paper, what's on the pages, what we know. And if it's not there, we probably don't know. Cause then it doesn't, it's hard to know. <laughs> I think it's a big percentage. Yes. Yes. Um, let's put it this way. China, India will, rep- will represent 43% of the global middle class in the next 10 years. Okay. Um, so if you look at the size of the middle class, maybe this, this answers it. I think you were skipping ahead. Um, so the global middle class increased from 1.8 billion in 2009 to 3.5 in 2017, and will grow uh, to 4 billion by 2021 and 5.3 by 2030. Okay. Wow, so, so, that so is a the, huge increase. So, so there is your answer. Uh, middle class spending is expected to grow from 37 trillion in seven, 2017 to 64 trillion by 2030. Uh, so um, that's a, a pretty staggering uh, increase there. Um, and that's going to be growth of you know consumption in emerging economies. Um, Are we still including China in emerging economies? India, I can see as emerging, but China seems to have already emerged. No, we're still we're still including China there. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, and and middle class the middle class market in advanced econ- like economy. So call it Western Europe, the Americas, or at least the U.S. Uh, Northern America, right? Um, that growth rate is only expected to be between zero point five and one percent per year, whereas in emerging. Uh, economies that should be at least six percent per year so you know it's uh, not even close so um i guess that suggests that we should put more money into these emerging markets overseas i think it can make a lot of sense for a lot of for a lot of people yeah i I think you know companies that also you know so either companies domicile they're focusing on the consumer uh or you know, really any company, even these multinationals that have exposures there to to the growing uh, consumer, um, that's, you know, that's where, that's where the growth rates are going to be found um, demographically, right? And so, um, and I think also, you know, when it comes to the, um, um, the economic, you know, rankings, as far as, you know, GDP perspective, I think by, uh, by 2030, call it 2050 um china china's one india's two us is three right so you see this kind of you know this shift in the next uh 30 years where um if you start to see a bit anemic growth in the broader us or call it developed uh nations um certainly tilting or having an exposure to uh to emerging I, I think we'll, you know, we'll pay off and where you'll find growth rates. At the risk of uh, jumping ahead, I'm looking at a chart about smartphone use in various countries. Yes. And how that's going to change and how that could change their economies. Well, think about it, right? I mean, you know, like when it comes to consumption of media 
advertising and spending money. You know, so if you have to buy a song or you have to buy, I don't know, something from Amazon, you know, it's done through your phone, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, you go to the store, you, you pay with your phone. You don't need the wallet, you know? So, you know, Apple pay, Google pay, whatever it may be. So like, if you have a phone with you, um, it's a conduit for financial transactions. Yeah. And that's, that's massive. That's massive growth for, uh, the payment processing companies. It's insane. It's insane. You know, like, um, as of like last year in just in China, you have what, um, 800 million smartphone users. What's the U S have maybe 250. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. right. India has maybe 400 million right now. And by the way, I mean, you know, um, looking at some data from the world bank, it looks like China has another 560 million users of, 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 you know, a non-smartphone user, right? So, so they'll convert. So that's another 560 million there. And then in India, uh, you have the gap to fill is like 930 some million. So right there, you got 1.4 billion more smartphone users coming online or need to come online over the next several years who are all going to consume media, video games, consumption of, of, you know, buying goods and services. Um, it's all there. The social platforms and a huge boost of productivity because now they've got, they've gone from nothing to having a supercomputer in their pocket and can access information and do more effectively. Now you're you're an Android now, right? Or is that a cyborg? (laughs) Can't remember. So basically, you know, whatever question you have, um, um, I guess it's a cyborg, uh, whatever, whatever question you could ever possibly need to know an answer to ask your phone. Yeah. It's there. Yeah, that's going to be, I mean, that, that could, that, I mean, that could be super accelerating their productivity. And, and think about, think about any company looking to reach to a certain geography, right? You can do it through a social platform. If everybody's connected, your ability to get an audience or to uh, find buyers or servicers or whatever it is, um, it's never been easier. It's only going to get easier. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a massive, massive opportunity. So the, uh, in a nutshell, people should have uh, exposure to those markets in their allocations. To those markets and to those companies that are, you know, helping, helping people transact, helping people do business, conduct commerce between each other and consume, you know, consume content, right? And, and everything. The emerging market as a, as a sector, as, how has this performance been over the last let's say 10 years and how's it looking now? Is it? Yeah. Um, From what I've heard has been, well, you, you can answer the question. Yeah. I don't have it in front of me, but I mean, um, just generally, just generally, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's done of the last handful of years is done. It's done extraordinarily well. Right. And I think that there's certainly a lot more runway for it to continue to do well. Um, I still hear that it's undervalued compared to the U S market. Sure. And also like an exposure over there, particularly if you have exposure to some of those countries that 
or, or companies that are traded in on in different currencies, right? If, if we continue to print money and rack up debt in the U.S., that um, you know by design is supposed to um, decrease the lo- the the value of, of the dollar and hence relatively increases other currencies. And so, if you have exposure there, it's a hedge. And if you're measuring your stock by price to earnings growth, and you're if those growth rates are as widely different as you just mentioned, you you have to have exposure overseas. Yes, that's right. That's right. And I think a lot of, you know, I mean, you see a lot of companies, whether it's Apple or Amazon or Google or who, you know, Johnson and Johnson or whatever. I mean, like, you know, these are, you know, these are things that they're, you know, they're looking at and getting exposure to. Um, and there's, you know, why it's, um, it's a very big untapped pool of young people. Yeah. Yeah. Every, it seems like every company is trying to get, go, go global. You're right. It's so easy now. It's as easy as it's ever been. Yeah. Yeah. I could just, you know, we could go global, just go, you know, do a social media ad and just say, you want to. Yeah. Just convert, convert the text to the local, um, <laughs> the local language, which there are technologies that do that pretty yeah. quickly. Yep. Uh, and you're up and running in 15 minutes. It's crazy. Yeah. If you wanted to start a business, if you had a business idea, you could have the, the bones for it done in a day. Yeah. Also like in, in the ways to fund that business now are just, you know, exploding. Yeah. It's crazy. So, yeah. um, so ways, to, ways to buy, you know, all these NFTs and stuff. This stuff's crazy. Have you heard about this stuff? No. What is that? How the, the non-fungible tokens basically it's related to blockchain. So I guess it's like you can now buy, there was just a $69 million artwork transaction that was done with an NFT, a non-fungible token. I don't really know the details of how it all works. I know it has to do with Ethereum, the Ethereum, uh, the, I almost said the Ethereum Bitcoin, the Ethereum cryptocurrency. Yes, yes. But uh, basically you can, it's a way of now buying and trading collectibles. And I don't know, I don't even know if you physically get it or it's just like you, you have like the, I don't even know. I don't know. Was this what I understood was a digital artwork sold for over $60 million? Yeah. Don't lose your password. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. Yeah. I saw the Kings of Leon, the band there, they were selling their album via a, a, a non-fungible token. Um, it's just blowing up. Uh, I think I saw on TV earlier today, someone bought like four years ago, uh, like a Kobe Bryant 1996 card via this for like $300. And then now they're going for like 30,000. Wow. So it's this whole idea now of, of like the portfolios of me and younger people and even Scott in 20 years might look a lot different with a lot more interesting and different alternative assets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the ways you can get exposure to real estate or uh, yeah, any more it's alternative not- stuff, right. I mean, um, you can get slices of things a lot easier. It's so. totally being democratized. It's not just going to be for the one percenters, you know? Yeah. It's all interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. I get, I guess more, uh, cr- more validity to the blockchain and crypto currency kind of stuff all right shall we wrap this up let's wrap it up all right
Let's wrap it up. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk again. Thanks for listening. If you want a question highlighted on the show or have any comments or feedback, shoot us an email at yourmoneydoit at gmail.com. See you on the next one.